0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. When we
1: increase education levels and credentials, the gap gets bigger. So for a long time, our narrative has been that, oh, it's because Black people need to go finish high school. It's because they're not educated. Actually, that's a nice narrative, and it is important that we see our educational gaps improve. However, when you look at that stat and you see it increasing when we get up to those individuals who have master's and doctorate degrees,
0: you tell me how that incentivizes Black children. I'm Faith Saley. Our first episode dropped into your podcast feeds in the summer of 2020. The world has changed immeasurably since then, but our mission has remained the same. Every season, every episode, we've strived to show you that while our world is an imperfect place, there are people out there trying to make it better. So here we are. We've come to the end of season four of Real Good. We've talked about coding and professional women's sports and what makes or breaks a neighborhood. We've even interviewed a self-proclaimed court jester. For every guest we've had on the show, we've seen not just talent and passion and intelligence, but incredible drive to adapt to new challenges. The qualities of a leader who can truly make the world a better place look a little different now than they did even five years ago. And our guest today, Tawana Black, the founder and CEO of the Center for Economic Inclusion, is an expert in leadership. Institutional racism exists throughout our society. To dismantle it, you have to know what it looks like. But in the business world, it can get tricky because the people who hold positions of power often directly benefit from the very structures they now want to break down. So to say that they might have some blind spots would be an understatement. That's where Tawana comes in. Her work is to redefine what leadership means for leaders. She helps talk executives consider the role racial inequality plays in how they run their business, especially in hiring practices. Maybe even more significantly, Tawana teaches leaders how to listen, admit fault, and still have the courage to try and do better. At the end of the day, fighting for racial equality isn't just the right thing to do. It's good business. So I don't know... If you both know this, but Greg, in your Twitter bio, it says you yeah. are a cultural catalyst. And Tawana, yeah. your bio says you are a catalytic strategist. So I don't know what happens when two catalysts meet. <laughs> I, this feels like it could be combustible. This is like a health and safety <laughs> question.
2: We just catalyzing stuff in Minneapolis. <laughs> And by the way, Ooh, by the way, to, that's right. Tawana, it is it is such a thrill and uh, honor to have you on. And I just I'm so excited to have you meet my my friend and co-host, Faith Saley. This is going to be a, an outstanding conversation. Absolutely. I'm thrilled for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And I also want to tell you, Tawana, when I was watching a video of you accepting, oh, just the 2021 Business Person of the Year Award yes. in Minneapolis, um, you were escorted out by your son and daughter, and um, Greg came and saw my off-Broadway show last year, and the highlight of my life was when my young son and daughter came out with me to take my final bow. And when, when I saw that, Tawana, I was just like, I, you know, I, yes. I, yes. I get you, yes. I feel you. <laughs> They, it was so special to see you walked out Absolutely.
1: They are, are everything. Um, uh, my husband and I, um, they last night got to see him um, uh, host uh, his fundraiser for his organization. And um, uh, there is something special about kids who see us um, sacrifice a whole lot, which means sometimes they don't see us as much as we wish that they did. Um, uh, get to partake in uh, the things that are meaningful moments um, for us and for um, the, the world for a moment to kind of bring it all back to what really matters.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. see, Greg, I just it did is. it. Greg Cunningham does that. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I call that. You know what I call that, Tawana, for my kids. I use the word purpose a lot. I want them to know that what I choose to do for a living is full of, of purpose, and that we can make choices to to devote our lives and make money at the same time. Right? To 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 um exercises of purpose.
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. I love that focus on. Uh, choices. I uh, had my children uh, late in life, uh, my husband and I, and um, uh, both by choice for a while and then by God's choice for a little while longer. Um, but before that, before we had our own children, we spent a lot of time with other people's children, both nieces and nephews who lived with us and then a lot of mentoring. And during those years, I talked to particularly young girls and young women about those choices and about all the possibilities that are open to us um, through choices, through purpose um, and opportunities. But also the fact that each one of us does have a purpose Um, and that the more that we do work, like the work we do here at the Center for Economic Inclusion, the more every person has the opportunity to fulfill that purpose.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you two are clearly living in your purpose. Um, Tawana, I'm excited to pull this out at you Uh, on your personal website. I was digging around and you have this blog under the title Tawana's Exhortations. So let's just pause and all agree that no one uses the verb exhort enough. (laughs) I love that. Um, And you wrote, I'm not an open book. I'm not easy to get to know. And apparently, I'm easily misunderstood, at least in Minnesota. Huh? who knew Ooh. so let's go exactly greg that's what i said let's go yeah. let's, tell us tell us what folks misunderstand wow. about you wow you Minnesota. really went digging oh my
2: goodness oh, oh my she's just she's <laughs> just getting started oh
0: like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, my
2: heart rarely races but it's
1: racing right <laughs> now omg um.
0: I have to tell you, I was interviewing the head of the Black Male Voter Project, and he goes, what are you, the police?
1: <laughs> well, I'll say, my, my a lot of my life has been really public for a lot of years, so I'm used to people digging. But it's so rare that people actually go on my own website to dig about me. So that you got me. You got me there.
0: It was a pleasure. I
1: will say, I think, um, one, I'm an introvert who gets paid to play an extrovert Um and so I think and, and I chose a, a field in creating the center where we're driving shared accountability. And so we're taking on hard issues a lot. And I interviewed someone last week who said, um, I asked people about you. She said, I know a lot of people. I'm close to a lot of people who know you. And I asked them all about you. And everybody said the same thing, which is um, she's very direct. And she, and she said, I asked them, like, whoa, what does that mean? If everybody says that, she's like, I asked, does that mean she's rude? And everybody said, no, not rude, but very direct. You will always know exactly where you stand. and You will know exactly what she thinks. And I think um, in Minnesota, um, compared to other places, mm. that can be interpreted as a whole lot of things. I think that can cause us, um, particularly for women, for Black women, for women of color, it can cause us to misunderstand confidence. Um, uh, and sometimes to strip away confidence. Um, and I think in my earliest years here, that occurred and, and caused me to have to spend some years rebuilding that confidence back up. Like, what does that mean? I think it can cause us to, um, think that the push for outcomes, um, means we don't like. Um, a person. So when I speak boldly about the issue, does that mean I don't like a person or a company? Absolutely not. Um, but it does mean like I'm unabashed about the goals, right? I'm relentless about pursuing the goals and that I believe um, an organization or a person can be a rose and a thorn in the pursuit of those goals um, and still be a rose, um, that that rose has some thorniness to it, um, or we won't get to achieving um, the full rose bush, if you will, Um, uh, but that it takes that. So I think those things are um, often misunderstood about me. I think my quietness um, can often, uh, and this is true about, I think, um, strong introverts who also have a bold side of them can cause folks to um, wonder how... um, In is this person too like right? How close is this person pulling me? Is this a transactional relationship or um, is this person all in? I'm an all in girl. I'm. I'm, You got all of me or you got none of me. Mm. There is no in between. Um, And yet, I think it can be hard to feel that or to know that um, uh, based on the day to day interactions, at the pace I move um, and the intensity that I move in.
0: Tawana, I love that word, direct. I, I'm always like, hashtag, thank you for not wasting my time, right? I actually think directness <laughs> comes with a lot of respect. Um, and there's a reason, y'all can tell me, because you live sure. in Minnesota, but there's a reason it's Minnesota nice, <laughs> not Minnesota direct, right?
2: Well, and, and it's it's partly one of the reasons why we face the challenges that we, um, is because Minnesotans, you know, haven't wanted to face the realities of what's been happening in this Tale of Two Cities uh, region uh, that we live in. and So I think uh, my, my question um, to Juana is, do you think it is a Minnesota thing or um, do you think it's regional in nature or do you think it's much broader than that? That's
1: a great question. I think every community has their own version of it. I yeah. think Minnesota's uniqueness, and I've been studying this since moving here almost 13 years ago because there is a unique brand of it here, I think the mm-hmm. uniqueness of it here is um, coupled in a couple of things. I think one is this is a community, a state where um, that notion of uh, liberalism, right? The, the notion of prosperity yeah. is one that is, has been deeply felt and something that Minnesotans have had a lot of pride in for a long time. So to mm. feel confronted that maybe this thing you thought you were, maybe it's not real, um, feels mm-hmm. challenging. And even whether that's about um, racial inclusion or social inclusion, a number of things, right? That, that feels like a challenge. And even to confront Minnesota nice, um, for me to move here and so many transplants, you have this experience where people tell you, oh, don't be offended, nobody's gonna invite you to their house. Um, or or you do invite people to your home and people say, you must not be from here because we won't do that. Um, Right. <laughs> now, right? <laughs> that that we're, we're right. proud of things we know are not in our best interest. We we're proud of things we know are not helping us. And we talk about them and laugh about yeah. them even when we know they're not helping us. I think that's some the uniqueness of Minnesota mm. as opposed to communities I've been yeah. in that might be experiencing some of the same challenges, but are more direct in saying, okay, we gotta stop yeah. this. Um, yes, I know I'm failing at at eating the cookies at night, but I'm going to take it on and I want you to hold me accountable. It's a little different here where it's like, yeah, I see that data, but is that really my fault? And and so I don't want (laughs) you to take that on, right? It's a a harder turn here. We're struggling more with making that turn.
0: Where did you, this is going to be terrible grammar. Everybody hang on. Where did you move to Minnesota from? Or from where did you move? How about this? Whence did you move? From 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 whence (laughs) did you
1: come? Yes. Um, Omaha, Nebraska.
0: Ah. Was my last
1: stop before coming to Minnesota.
0: And where did you grow up, Tawana? So I grew
1: up in a small town south of Wichita, Kansas, called Arkansas City, Kansas. spelled like Arkansas, but said like Kansas.
0: And... Am I right in understanding that you lost your parents and your adoptive parents when you were quite young?
1: Yes, um, uh, you are right. So I lost my mother. Um, She died when I was a baby, just before I was two years old. Um, And um, uh, my grandparents then adopted me. um, And one by one, um, I lost my mother, father, um, then adopted father, and then adopted mom, um, uh, all by 25. So how did that shape you? Um, I think in a few ways. One, while that is um, tragic and um, traumatic, I was immensely loved and immensely surrounded by people who were deeply invested in my future, um, in my prosperity, in my promise, and so um, in many ways, unlike many children's. In in, in all honesty, um, from uh, the judge who oversaw my adoption proceedings, um, who my family talks about to this day, um, gave me a Shetland pony um, because when you're from a small town, like everybody knows everybody. And so like you're like, invested in that way um, to. Um,
0: uh, Wait, I'm sorry. Is that literal? The judge gave you a Shetland pony? Literally. I, th- I thought that was like, you know, all kids want a pony. No, no. That's literal. Literally. Okay. <laughs> literally. Welcome to Kansas. Literally. Absolutely.
1: Now, that said, my family, you know, I grew up in a family who trained racehorses. We owned horses. So it wasn't too far, like, removed. But, like, that nature of, like, a judge who isn't just overseeing proceedings and signing something, but who's invested in, oh, my goodness, like, this child in our community Community. has experienced something major. And I want to sow into her future in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. To, I tell people that, like, I, at eight years old, decided I wanted to be a corporate attorney when I grew up. Everybody in my community knew that to the point that when you go back there now, if you ask people what I am, those <laughs> people will tell you, like, she's a corporate attorney. <laughs> a whole community of people wrapped around me, like, right? So I interned Aww. in the local courts from right out of high school and every summer after college, right? So people invested. So it, it had its tragedies, but it also had its blessings from just a community of people who surrounded me and invested in me. But it also meant growing up with a mindset of not expecting to have a long life expectancy. So I made up in my mind very early that I wasn't going to live long, not because the doctor told me while they ran lots of tests on me from a very young age. Um, uh, when your mom dies of a heart attack at 25, people are get, get kind uh, of nervous, 28, I'm sorry, they get nervous. So, But I set that in my head and said, OK, I'm not going to be around, so I'm going to work my butt off. To be the point that when I die, people will say she did more by 28 than anybody ever did. And so that was my line of sight for a very long time. And I woke up at 30 saying, God, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> I'm tired. And where, what are we doing here? Like I thought we were supposed to be done by now. So it shaped my pacing I think in many ways that still shows. I've worked hard to undo it, but it still shows.
0: No, but Tawana, that that feeds right into the fact that you're direct. You have an urgent yeah. purpose. It's urgency, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a
2: sense of urgency.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and a sense of, of purpose. Like, I know I was put here to do something really significant. I know I was left here to do something really significant. Um, and so um, these hands, its mind, um, heart are meant to do things. I think everybody was, but certainly from a very young age, I felt like, okay, Lord, um, uh, you took away um, uh, my parents uh, for a reason, but you left me here for one. So whatever that is, I'm going to go find it. And I'm going to use these gifts to the very best of my ability.
0: So I got to know, when did this dream of becoming a corporate attorney um, turn into... Where did
2: that come from? (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess we can back up. Yeah. were you watching the the
1: paper chase or what? Yes, the game of life. On the game of life, which I loved playing, moved the little car around the board. Oh, yeah. Attorneys made 100000 dollars And Felicia Rashad um, on the Cosby show <gasps> made that look quite that's glamorous. Right. And so one yes, plus one equaled a fabulous life in my book. And so uh, that's where it came from.
0: When when did you I mean I'm I'm sure the journey is itinerant, but when did you what was the moment at which you go from being a, a aspiring to be a corporate attorney to thinking I'm going to found a center for economic inclusion because I'm I know you realize that title this place you have founded this thing C-E-I, you have founded that's a po- CEI CEI <laughs> yes it that's a powerful name that is thinking big indeed
1: there's the only one way to be absolutely I think the the pivot from corporate law happened early. So in college, realizing quickly, I love to learn, I hate to sit in a classroom. It's just just that simple. And as I came to learn that, I said, Okay, girl, um, uh, three years of law school is going to be a, a really large waste of money for you, because you're not going to maximize that opportunity. So what are you going to do? And started off down this pathway of thinking, okay, maybe being a city manager, because I was interning in my city manager's office and in courts in my hometown, but then uh, got an opportunity to work for a nonprofit in Kansas um, early on um, uh, and got the taste of transformation. At the same time, I experienced a life change that helped me understand social services and the system In a way, I had not before, as I had grown up really blessed and and somewhat privileged and didn't know a lot about social services from a government perspective, except that I believed those services were enabling poverty in some ways. I believed they were taking people who had brilliance and talent and setting them up for a life that didn't allow them to use that to the best of their ability. And then I got sick Um, my junior year in college. I was going numb from right underneath um, uh, my chin all the way down to my feet on my left side. My doctors couldn't figure it out, and I needed an MRI, and I was uninsured. And uh, my doctor said, go to your state welfare office, and they'll give you Medicaid, and that'll cover this MRI because it's going to be $3,000, and you just shouldn't pay for that. And I went, and a woman sat across from the table to me. I cry almost every time I recount this story, and she said, you're doing everything right, And that's wrong. So I can't really help you with Medicaid. But what I could give you is food stamps. And I said, what? I don't understand. What do you mean? And she said, you're working part time because I was clerking at a law firm at that time, 20 hours a week. And you're going to school full time. And so I can't help you. But in her exact words, if you were to get yourself knocked up and or quit school and quit your job, I could help you. But I can't in this scenario. But I can give you food stamps. Oh my god. I cried like a baby at her desk and left and and the story ends up fine. My family pays for the MRI. I get the help I need. I get well. But I was distraught cuz that food stamp card did show up in the mail even though I told her I didn't need food.
0: Mm.
1: And I thought, okay, here's this system that I haven't understood that I thought was just People who knew better and could do better using. And now I know this system is actually set up to cause people to be in failure, because at that moment, as a 21 year old, I didn't know what I was going to do. For me, $3,000 was like $3 million. And I was like, I don't have it. I don't know what to do. So I guess I need to quit school. I mean, I wasn't going to get knocked up, but I was like... I guess I don't know I quit my job, I dropped my course load, I don't know. But I got to do something and thankfully for family, but a whole lot of people don't have family who has three grand sitting in the bank to pay Most for an MRI. Most yeah. Most people don't. Yeah. So the thought of, of a caseworker saying that to a young Person who's sitting with tears in her eyes across the desk helped me say, "Okay, wait, I don't want to sit in law school for three years, but I do want to do something that changes these systems. And I started working in just career after career where I've been doing that, that mix of public sector, private sector communities who know the system because they're stuck in it bringing those voices forward to transform a number of different systems throughout my career. But at the end of the day, it's that having been in the situation, knowing if it were not for family and God and a little bit of sense, that could have been me.
0: Tawana, I was looking at your Twitter and and you tweeted, God is capable of hitting you with a plot twist at any given moment. And I was going to ask you to give me an example of a plot twist and you just described it. It's pivot.
2: It's a pivot moment. Pivotal.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you use the word that you had this belief, right? About how the welfare system worked and and what kind of people exploited it. And it turned out it was a misbelief. And and um as 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 a writer, I have often been told when you're telling a story, the only thing people care about is the moment of miss when you recognize your misbelief, right? Ooh, that's right. when things change. And it occurs to me as I'm expressing this to both of you, that's what you two are doing for a living. You are helping companies, individuals and companies identify th- these systemic misbeliefs. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, no, it, 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 we've talked about that for, for number of seasons now, Faith, right? Like it. That is the work. Um, You know, so much of we we were talking earlier about how easy it is for institutions and and others to come into these communities and the narrative and the mindset of seeing these communities as deficit communities and not seeing them as um, asset-based communities for a system to take a young woman like Tawana and her circumstance and say, you're you're, you're, you're almost more valuable if you're in a, in a, in a situation um, that is uh, not conducive to you being successful and productive, that
0: disempowerment.
2: disempowerment, that's what this is. That's how you keep a community down. That's how you keep your thumb on a community um, is by, because you keep them needing um, these services. And that's why I think the work that we're doing together, the work that Tawana is doing at the center, um, the work that we're doing collectively is, um, with U S bank is so important. And I want to say before, um, we go any further faith that, um, you know, Tawana's work in CEI is touching not only our community, but she's the reach of CEI is, is national. And, um, I know she has a relationship with the, with the Brookings Institute as a fellow, I believe, and Tawana, you can fact check me on all that, but she's also serving, you know, on our access advisory, um, group, um, here at the bank, and really brings a perspective that you know helps us learn every single day um, at, at the bank and the work that we're doing because you have to be incredibly um, intentional about dismantling these systems, and that for us um, is really looking at every aspect of our business and trying to identify where those barriers um, are. So I want to thank her publicly for uh, for all the work mm. that she helps us do to get better.
1: Thanks for that great. It means a lot. Appreciate your partnership in this work.
0: Tawana, let's help folks understand what CEI does, right? So you founded, quote, the first organization in the country dedicated exclusively to creating regional economic inclusion. What does that mean?
1: Great question. It means that we've got a team of researchers, of strategists, of I call them strategic architects and analysts who come inside businesses, local and regional government, cities and counties, and help them not only understand their data and understand disparities, but really understand the economic opportunity that exists when we start to close racial employment gaps, income gaps and wealth gaps, and then create the strategies in order to do so. That might be talent strategies, might be procurement and supplier diversity strategies, philanthropy strategies, public policy approaches, Or even strategies that are at core to their businesses, what products they sell, how they sell them, what markets they're selling them in, and then how they measure that in solidarity and in transparency with the communities, the workers that they have inside their businesses and the vendors and their supply chain and ultimately their investors. And we do that work because we know that when we do it well, we can not only improve the lives of Black and Brown communities across the country. But ultimately, the data says that if we do this work well enough and over time sustain it, we can close the gaps in the GDP, not only, again, for black and brown communities, but that we should improve the GDP by four to six percent by closing those gaps. This is good for everybody. (laughs) And so we take that approach in our work is to say this isn't charity. This is not a handout. This is about closing racial wealth gaps that have been stagnant because of systems and improving our economy and doing so in a way that's measurable and sustainable.
0: You wrote an op-ed called This Isn't Charity, or It Isn't Charity, um, that I read before I hit a paywall. Oof, that was painful. But now that I know more about you, now that I know that you get emotional to this day about receiving food stamps in the mail, to have you talk about This Isn't Charity... Um, it is, is incredibly powerful. And Greg, we've, ta- we've talked about this over and over that, that over. diversity, DEI work is good business, right? <laughs> like, yeah. can you just explain again, one more time, for the people in the back, why diversity and closing racial and wealth gaps is good economics?
2: Yeah, And, and it hasn't always, been, the practice itself hasn't always been that way, Faith, which is why. Um, for over 50 years that this practice has been around, we're actually in a worse place than we were in the 70s. <laughs> like we actually, oh. if you look at the numbers and you look at the number of you know, representation in corporate America and on corporate boards, you could argue that we're actually in a worse place today. Um, and the reason that is, is because-
0: In terms of, of, of numbers of, 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 of people of representation color? Representation
2: of men and people yeah. of color on, in senior executive roles and CEOs- of Fortune 500 companies, women CEOs—I mean, all of it by by almost any measure—and the reason it is is because we focus so much on, hey, this is the right thing to do, you know, um, you know, it's the benevolent thing to do, and let's let's make sure that we change the numbers on the scorecard. But and all of that is true. It, it, I'm not arguing that that's not true. But what is also true is, yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's actually the smart thing to do. It's actually the way Twana talked about the the racial wealth gap and racial disparities. And you've heard me say it a thousand times, Faith, that there is no separation between racial justice and economic justice. That's my belief. I believe they're inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. And so as a financial institution, as an industry that has contributed historically to creating these disparities, we have to focus on the things that we can do and that we can change. And that's the economic, closing the economic disparities in this country, because that's how we all win. And when you think of DEI in, the, in terms of it's not only the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do so that we can all reach that full potential so that our economy, our country can fulfill its promise for everybody. That's how we all benefit. And so that's the pivot we're making at the bank is thinking about it as the right thing to do and the smart thing to do and being very that that being ambidextrous in how we think about that right thing to do smart thing to do let's bring them both together and then when we talk about
0: you know what happens when you bring them together you were showing up your hands hands. it's a clap it's it's, 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 It's we're clapping and now we're
2: growing inclusive so we're talking about the work that we're doing is about inclusive growth that's how we talk about growth in our organization when we talk about growth it's how do we grow inclusively because we're casting a broader net um, so that we can, uh, we can all be a part of this acceleration and growth. So,
0: so Tawana, as I understand it, the way uh, CEI works is that you use data to, to have research-backed insights, right? So, so that all these things Greg is saying, you can say, here, here's the data. Can, how does that work? Like, what, what, how do you find data for this? What are you collecting and what is it showing?
1: yeah that's a great question so we approach the data in a couple of different ways one is to look at the economy as a whole right so to look and say um the example i just used a moment ago so if we were to close racial wealth gaps uh we look at a one core metric we look at is if you were to see every person who goes to work every day if we paid all of those people doing the same job the same wage What impact would that have? So that four to 6% improvement in the GDP, that is tied to simply saying employers, stop discriminating what you pay people based on race. Today, we have far too many people who go to work do the same job eight hours a day, but get paid differently. And the data shows us when we dig into that, that racial bias is a large part of that gap in pay. And why we know it's race is when we increase education levels and credentials, the gap gets bigger. So for a long time, our narrative has been that, oh, it's because black people need to go finish high school. It's because they're not educated. Actually, that's a nice narrative. And it is important that we see our educational gaps improve. However, when you look at that stat and you see it increasing when we get up to those individuals who have master's and doctorate degrees, you tell me how that incentivizes black children who also bear the brunt of the share for things like college debt to say, oh yes, let me go get additional degrees. The math doesn't make sense. So we have to be able to take on those disparities and start to close them because that only increases the amount of times that those dollars are turning over in our economies. So we start with that economic level data, but then we come in deeper to say, okay, what can you do about that? Because you might say, okay, Tawana, that makes sense to me, but I've run the data in my business and that's not our challenge. We're actually we've solved for pay equity. That was our challenge 10 years ago, but we've solved for that. So we come in and we bring tools to bear inside businesses to help them analyze and say, what is your opportunity? The U.S. Bank is a great example who just participated in our first racial equity dividends index, where we helped businesses in this marketplace. And now we're expanding this start to understand how they're performing on the leading standards for anti-racist employer actions. In their leadership ranks, how how are they taking those steps around decision making and policy, so that leaders are guiding the right decisions? In their hiring and their talent and their improvement and abilities to advance in the business, in their procurement and supplier diversity, their philanthropy, public policy, and then that core marketplace. And then we give them not only a report back that says, "Here's how you fare on those indicators," but then as well, here are examples of how companies are taking steps to move their own organizations forward. And here's the economic outcome on those regions and economies where they're doing business. Here's how it's helping their workers. Here's how it's helping the communities that they serve. Here's how it's good for business as well. So then companies can say, okay, we've made improvements maybe in our leadership arena or our hiring over the last few years. This year, we want to focus on public policy or philanthropy because that's a place that we have an opportunity. And knowing that it starts with that assessment, having the data that tells us how we're doing, creating the policies and strategies that are going to help change it, and then measuring it year after year after year and doing so in solidarity, not to beat ourselves up, but also not to navel gaze
0: at the stat and say, oh, it's bad.
1: To say how do we move together in ways that make our community stronger for everyone?
0: Tawana, I whenever we talk about data on this show, I love it because I feel like numbers are pretty unassailable, right? They're, you could you show you show them to people, and it's hard to argue with numbers. And I heard you in an interview, and I, I want to get Greg's take on this. In an interview where you where you were honored with the Twin Cities Business Person of the Year. You were talking about culture and how culture can be exclusive with head nods and these kind of micro exchanges and unwritten rules of the game. And so, when it comes to the work you do, how do you recognize that stuff? How do you call that out? These codes written by people in power. When when it I, you can educate me. It doesn't seem like data can come into play there. So how do you almost, this is my verb, not yours, infiltrate a company and identify th- the kind of, um, you know, inequities that can go under the radar?
1: Yeah. So there are a couple ways that I'll give you a couple of examples of ways that data can help. And then I'll give you um, ways that we can facilitate that, that bring it to life. So ways that data can help is in the index, for example, we ask a question, um, we ask it in each category, but it's the same kind of framing that says, do you have a policy, um, and most people are used to a- answering that question. But then it says, and are leaders held accountable for that policy? So, for instance, do you have a policy on that assesses um, the percentage of spend that is going into um, businesses that are owned by Black, Indigenous, Asian, and Latino people? And are leaders held accountable for achieving whatever that goal is? So we're not telling you that the goal has to be 9% or 22%. But whatever it is, have you driven accountability to that such that your workers, your employees, your consumers, the people in your supply chain know you care just as much about that as you care about sustainability, you care about economic performance, you care about everything else? Because if you care about it, you will align to that in the same way you do to everything else. And from a culture standpoint, Your employees are looking and saying, I know at every quarterly meeting, leaders stand up there and say it's just as important as everything else. But I also know in the policies, it's written and described very different than everything else we care about. In the compensation manual, it's written very differently than everything else we care about. In the bonus system, right, the IC system, it's very different than everything else. So from a culture standpoint, employees are looking and saying, yeah, uh -uh, it doesn't align up. I don't believe you. I don't believe you because Mm. your actions speak louder than your words. So I can't align that. And oh, by the way, it is not only your black and brown employees who are saying that your white employees are saying, I don't believe you. And therefore I know I don't have to do that. And I know this is a former person who said in Greg's seat, leaders would say to me, Tawana, I want to do what you're asking me to do. But my boss gave me some goals that are in conflict with that. (laughs) And those are the goals that my incentive compensation is tied to. So I know, I know Mm. what they said at that big meeting. But I also know what's right and so data is sometimes not only about assessments but data is also about what are we measuring what's important to the business from a culture standpoint though we can also take things like the assessments we have that allow us to understand what are employees saying what are our consumers saying how are they experiencing the business how are they experiencing this organization um, in a real sense and I tell our clients that what you get typically on a second survey, the second year that you really amp up your momentum in this work and you start to ask deeper questions, sometimes you'll see your scores dip because then your employees, your consumers really believe you. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. that year was nice, you asked some nice questions and you put up your posters with your campaign. But now you've sustained the work for a year. And now I really want to tell you how I actually feel, how I'm actually experiencing this organization. So don't fall apart and think, oh, we got worse. No, we got better at creating a culture where people could tell us the real deal about how they're experiencing inclusion and equity. So Tawana, you're,
0: you're, this is like therapy.
2: <laughs> In many ways. It, it really is. That, that, we actually said that too. It, it, um, you know what I really love about the, the, the assessment, Tawana, and I don't think I've ever I shared this with you. What I love, really, really love about it, one, is the... the 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 barrier to entry was so low faith in terms of, there was no reason for companies not to take it. First, uh, let me say it that way. Said it it almost felt like therapy because now you had to start to look at these areas that maybe you either didn't want to look at or didn't think to look at. And now you've got these breadcrumbs to success. It's almost like giving you the blueprint. Like when you think about the assessment, it's almost like a blueprint for success. And I actually said that to, to another group. And what we've used it for is actually to help us set some really um, tangible stretch goals for ourselves um, around things like public policy. You know, those seven dimensions that Tawana talked about are all areas that we should be assessing anyway. But once you do that, you do sort of raise an expectation for yourself and you start to ask the really tough questions of yourself. And the way to eradicate, I think, some of the issues that you brought up is you do have to start to make these things part of the plan. They actually have to be part of your, your actual business goals. Like you can't have goals that, you know, if the company is, um, if the company is, is, is becoming more disciplined in its procurement um, uh, policy as a, as an example, and we're trying to refine our spend, but you can't cut your diverse spend. You've got to set some very clear goals, as Tawana said, and make it part of the overall business strategy. And you can't have separate diversity goals and separate business goals.
0: Again, because both of you keep reminding people, because it's good business.
2: Yeah, and 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 it's got it. And there's an intentionality that comes with this work, which is the third thing I was going to say about the assessment. Those companies who've made the decision to take the assessment are intentional about getting better. And what CEI has done that is so incredibly smart, in my opinion, is not using the survey to shame and blame anybody, but to call to your attention where you can continue to get better, looking at your own data, but also benchmarking against um, against like organizations in your region. So you can't use region as a crutch. We can't hire people because we're in Minneapolis. Like you can't you can't use those things. But it's. None of this work should ever be about shaming and blaming. But if you're intentional about getting better um, in doing the work, there are tools out there um, to help you do that.
0: Absolutely. And, and I would love to know, Tawana, what those conversations are like. Because as, as Greg is explaining, the companies that bring you on board, that reach out to CEI, they, they want to know. They, they need to know. Um, and... Yet, when when you deliver what you found and your suggestions for change, your exhortations, as it were, um, are those ever challenging conversations for them, for these businesses that have reached out to you? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. You know, I think there's always some element of that work that is challenging for people, even companies who know they have some challenge and might have experienced it. There's a CEO we've worked with who had witnessed racism herself inside our organization, had seen it, knew who, right, had called it out, had taken it on on behalf of their clients and customers. Um, and yet when you start to see the data, we did a 10 year data um, analysis for them. Uh, and when you start to see the data, then that's something altogether different. Right. Because it's one thing. Um, when we think about individual racism, right? I see the person, the grocery store clerk who I think did something racist and I'm gonna call them out as an individual. That's one thing. It's different when we start to see, wait a minute, I've got systemic racism inside my institution. How am I going to undo that? How am I going to build in enough, not only new processes and new policies and systems, but to really undo that system? While I also speak to the hearts and minds of my employees and try to re-engineer their thinking, their beliefs, their ideals about humans, right? Help, try to help them uncover those things that we all wake up every day and say, I'm not racist. It's not me. How do I help my employees move to that place of, it's not just that I want you to say I'm not racist in the morning. I want you to wake up and say, I'm going to be anti-racist. anti-racist. Yeah. And I'm going to ask myself tonight, what actions did I take all day long? Yeah. Yeah. Such that I feel like I lived up to that. Mm-hmm. That's hard work. And we don't try to sugarcoat it for em- employers that it's going to be easy. Here's the report. Yeah. It's going to yeah, be a no. fast six month journey.
0: No, you don't. You know, in in the words you're, or the lexicon of your organization, I was really struck by the solid action words. I mean, you're dismantling, deconstructing, disrupting. I mean, we started out this conversation talking about the urgency with which you live because you were allowed to live past the age of 28, right? And and your company is embodying that too. And you, you specifically use the word anti-racist. By the way, I was really curious because anti-racist did not enter my vocabulary until maybe five years ago um do y'all want to guess when it was first sort of coined at least as far as we can tell according to google hmm, no idea anyone want to name a year well you're not going to get a buzzer just take a guess don't worry i won't shock you
2: 2018 1943 what isn't
0: that, isn't that fascinating
2: in what context in what hi. context
0: yeah, there, there. Oh gosh, now you're grilling me, and I well, don't. You I you do not it?
2: You. I know, but I didn't
0: cut and paste the whole graph, y'all. <laughs> no, there was someone talking. There was a writer talking about writing about racism in in the 40s. Clearly, who who talked about anti racist laws. I mean, I, I actually, I'm, mm. I'm sorry to tell you, I can't remember the end of the Jim Crow era. But wouldn't have wouldn't 1943 still be s- Somewhat on the outskirts of that around
2: that time. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So, so, okay. So all of our minds are blown that this phrase has been around since 1943, but, but most of us have only started hearing it and hopefully trying to live it right in the past five years. last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Last couple of years. So, so Tawana, given how fresh it seems, are you ever met with defensiveness um, or resistance to that word? Yes. Yes. I mean, because y'all are in Minneapolis, right? I don't need to yeah. remind you that this is where George Floyd was murdered, that that every if, if things were already urgent. I mean, you know, things hit warp speed in 2020. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's still um, in every room. Right. Um, resistance or fear, concern, concern. Um, you all mentioned that DEI before, and so there are some rooms where people are already tired of. Okay, we've been on this race piece for a couple of years now. Can we move back to some other form of diversity now, or can we?
0: Wait, I'm sorry. This- what does yeah. that even mean? Like, like so let's gender, let's focus can on we move, women or emotional yeah. disability. Yeah. Can we move something
1: else? But enough of this. Oh already. my gosh!
0: As if it's a wheel. Let's just spin yeah. the wheel <laughs> and see where <laughs> it lands <laughs> this <laughs> year.
1: Who's turning <laughs> it?
2: Who's turning okay. it now? <laughs> Put
0: this
1: one down now. Like we've done enough, you know. And that that sensitivity um, is is painful. And, and our work is about creating enough space in the room for that to not only come out, but now let's deal with where that's coming from. What fear? is prompting that because our inability to take this work on deeply, right? And even to that, we call it uh, one of my clients, a mayor in town, um, said when they hired us, said Tawana, the fact that I sit in rooms of mayors and none of us can even say the word anti-racist or racial equity work. We just all call it this work because like (laughs) we don't want to mess that up and say the wrong thing, right? And I said, he said, is that okay? And I'm like, well, it's where you are. So it's not about is it okay or not? okay. to Greg's point, it's not about shaming. this is where we are. Where do we want to get to? And let's get to the root of the fears that keep us from ever going deep enough that we're not at that place Greg called out earlier, where it's 50 years and we all have more children and grandchildren and they're dealing with the same stuff because none of us took on those deep fears. We didn't put them on the table and really reckon with them long enough to turn them over and actually take those on because we can create hiring strategies and spend strategies all day long. But if we don't get to the root of what makes us just do the surface, you know, put the icing on top of the cake that's horrible,
0: (laughs) who cares? So how do, I mean, both of you are catalysts. How do you expedite this stuff? What do you do with all that catalytic energy when, when when you and so many people want change now, but it's clearly never happening fast enough? I mean, this is a racial wealth gap. I was going to say that's like 70 years in the making, but probably it's fair to say 400 years in the probably making, like right? 50, yeah, 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 let's, yeah. Go 16, let's go back yeah. to 1619.
2: Let's go back to 1619. I, you know, for, speaking for me, I, you know, Faith, we talked about this before. I I talked about the easy burden part of it, but, um, you know, you just wake up understanding that responsibility that you have. And it's not up to you as a catalyst to, solve all of it, as as Tuana said earlier, but each of us has a responsibility to contributing to making it better, um, to making improvement. I have no illusions that in my lifetime we're going to solve all these problems. You know, just as those who came before us had no illusions that they were going to solve all of this stuff, but it doesn't prevent you from doing the work so that it's better for the next generation. And you're sort of creating these building blocks that the next generation can continue to sort of stand upon and so, when you have that concept of, and for me, it always goes back to history. Like, I just am, am, am a student of that, and I have such a deep appreciation for what those who went before us went through. Um, Tuana, on a previous episode, I was talking about our trip to, um, to, to Montgomery, and we were visiting one of those um, uh, uh, enslaved quarters and the fingerprints, and how these enslaved people left fingerprints in the concrete to say, I was here. Like, somebody's going to know I was here. And that was their way of saying, you know, of of being seen. That's what we're doing is we're leaving fingerprints. Like, just know that we were here and we were doing the work. And now it's your turn, right? Like, take it. it it's, it's a relay race, you know, like run your leg, run your leg and pass it on to the next one. Um, to me, you know, faith, that as long as you keep that perspective in mind and understand your responsibility to it into the work you can get up every day and and you know fight any battle that's that that's in front of you
0: you must want to pass that torch or that baton in the relay race to to allies too right like e- e- easy it, burden is a really noble thing but maybe spread the burden pass the baton to people who aren't just black leaders
2: oh for sure for sure we need we need everybody you need you know, all, all, you know, everybody to be in, in solidarity with us in this work because we all benefit. You know, I hate when, when people talk about the civil Hello. rights Well, I have people come to, yeah, it was, it's kind of like you're a civil rights movement, like my civil rights movement. Like you've been, <laughs> wait, wait, time out. Like we all benefited from the work that Dr. King and everybody else did in the civil rights movement. So it's not the civil rights movement, one, the black movement, as an American movement. We wouldn't be talking about any of, the, any of this stuff if it weren't for the work that happens. So, yes, we all need to be in solidarity, but understanding that we all benefit from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tawana, do you want to add anything to that?
1: You know, I, I do. My mind um, went a couple of places with your, your question. I think there's the work you do every day that is about the systems, right? That's the big and it's the hard. And to Greg's point, that won't be done in our lifetime. So we're chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and it is improving. But we know like, okay, somebody else has to pick up that baton and that we're instilling the values that say, you know, pass it. Don't drop it. Whatever you do. When your time is up, when you need a break, whatever you do, just don't drop it. You can pass it, but don't drop it. And then there's the work that is about the right now. And so I think those opportunities that come up for us. Or we have a moment that we can invest, whether that is investing capital in the way that US Bank is doing, in the way that we're doing through our fund here at the Center for Economic Inclusion, or it's investing knowledge that you have some piece of knowledge that somebody else doesn't have that would help them open a door, that you do that in that moment that you pause and those things that get give you that's joy. Like
0: Greg so, talks about mentorship in that in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah, that we've got to be doing that.
1: And I think whether that's You know, city to city. There are cities that don't have a center. And so we're spreading that knowledge peer to peer, right? Those things are just as important as the system work, A, because they give you joy and fuel to stay in the movement and stay in the work. But also because it is, to Greg's point, it's going to take lots of fingerprints and lots of muscles and lots of hands grabbing these batons in order to create the communities and economies that we're working to build here and that are. Our promise, that our America's promise, the world's promise, it takes that, and I, I think the more we can keep that in front of us, um, the more those possibilities of purpose continue to birth themselves, um, and the innovation continues to fuel because all these ideas have it there. You know, this is we say there's nothing new under the sun, and that's true, but the way the innovation fuels off of one another as force multipliers, um, that's power. That's the power that we need in this work.
2: You know, and I, it, I, I love. That you just used the word underscore innovation, because to me, that is the real currency of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. It's all about innovation. Like by definition, you can't. By by definition, you can't. Sorry, I'm folks knocking on the window. Um, but de- <laughs> Tuan, I'm in you're, the North. You're I'm famous. The, I'm in I'm in, no, I'm in, I'm in the North Minneapolis branch, Tuana. So you so you can appreciate what's <laughs> happening right now. <laughs> <People>
0: like, <laughs> it's, it's a Friday it's, afternoon, Greg, people want their money for the weekend. Money,
2: folks. Like, I don't have it. I don't have it. You know, <laughs> it's <laughs> speaking of currency. Um, <laughs> but innovation is the currency of DEI work. I mean, it, it is, it is, uh, it, it's that creativity and decision-making it's the um, allowing everyone to sort of um, uh, to, to show up, uh, as themselves in their because in, it's
0: a new point of view because it's not what was there it's before a new, per-
2: fresh perspective, all of it, all of that
0: and 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 there was something in your bio, Tawana that said that that described you as having unrestrained imagination. and I was so drawn to that phrase and and that's that's what innovation is, right?
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think that space of um Believing anything is possible. Like if there's anything that that is me, it's like, I believe this is possible. I fully believe it is possible to build an economy that works for everyone. And for some, that's like going a little far. Um, for some, believing that we can create workplaces where all people can thrive is like, okay, that's going a little far, right? For some, uh, creating a place where we can all change our hearts is going a little far. For me, that's not too far, right? It's, it's possible and I get up every morning with that drive to go do that and create the magnetism between all of us um, where it goes. And it doesn't mean I'm going get tired of it. It doesn't mean there aren't some days that I don't walk out of here and want to burn the whole place down. But it does mean that I get back up and believe it's possible. But then it just takes like, okay, I don't have the answer right now, right? So it means like, okay, I got to talk to Greg. Okay, I've got to go talk to Faith. I've got to get somebody else's ideas in here. because I don't have them right now, but I will have them, right? I will have them when I connect with other people. That's all that a roadblock means is that, okay, I need more minds coming together in order to be able to create this solution because it's absolutely possible. Um, And having that imagination that says it is possible is really half of our battle. And yet I say that from a place of being blessed to have operated, to go back to where we began earlier I've been blessed to spend most of my life, not all, in places where my imagination was fueled and not stripped. Mm-hmm. And too many people, unfortunately, yes. are in classrooms and neighborhoods and communities where imagination
0: is stripped. Yes, Imagination doesn't anything. even seem like an option, right? Absolutely. If, not, if you're, you're not. trying to survive, you don't get to imagine. Right? Absolutely not. That's right. Absolutely
1: not. I just, um, I intentionally moved my children to a, city, a school, a charter school in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. And that was a good choice for them. And, and recently they just moved to another school because I, um, I believe in the power of choice. I am, my mind is blown at the resources available in elementary and middle schools in different neighborhoods. Like having wow. been now, I feel like I've been all over the metro My mind is just absolutely blown at what we can invest when we choose to invest. Mm -hmm. It is just absolutely blown. And then to think about, as I walked through these hallways, what do children's minds do, right? Like, how quickly does the mind start to explore when you're exposed to all of this as opposed to this? Like, it just, I'm just... What's, My mind has yeah. blown. And to that point of it's good for all of us, it's good for business to care about that and get all up in that business because it is harming 20 years from now, our future of our country's economy, that we have not figured out how to solve that challenge and say every school should have all the same amenities because it is harming our ability to produce engineers who are just as creative, right, <laughs> from every zip code. Because if you don't get that stimulation early, right. I can tell you, you come out and your ability to think outside that box is limited. Why? Because
0: we in a place that limited it. You are echoing and highlighting this theme we have had all season, all season. because we've been talking mm-hmm. to a lot of women leaders and it is it is about teaching kids and in a lot of cases, girls. And, and children of color and all mm-hmm. kids, this is possible. Right. This, this, you can do this. You can see this. It's, and I, you both probably know this. Studies have found that the biggest indicator of a child's quote unquote success, whatever that looks like in, in life. And in America, it's often a good job and a great education mm-hmm. is the zip code they grow up in.
2: Oh Yeah. Yeah
0: which which i mean the center for economic inclusion is about a, is about region too it's about place right yeah
2: well environment matters faith like it's we started this call with both of you talking about the things that you would expose your children to the things that they see it doesn't matter what you tell your kids you can tell them stuff all day long it's what they see they will role model what they yeah. see And if your environment tells you that the only way out of this circumstance is for me to dribble a ball, run a ball, or do something illegal, that's what I'm going to do. And so the environment matters. That's what the whole zip code and all that study and that data is about, Faith. And so we have to change the environment and how we support these kids. It's all the stuff that you guys started this conversation talking about. That's what I'm so proud about, the work that underlies with Twana and the team. By the way, her team is bad. Like they bad, like they they got some bad <laughs> they got some bad, bad people up in there doing this work, which is really cool to see. Um, but that's what's underlying all of this. It's like how do we help corporations understand businesses understand the role that they play because people are looking for leadership in much different places by necessity by the way, than where they used to. and I'm not criticizing any institutions, but I know businesses now understand that they have a unique Expectation and how they will lead. And that's what CEI is helping us and so many other businesses do.
0: I, I have these images of your team just pushing up their sleeves, Tawana. I'd love to see this
2: bad. They bad. Team. No, they bad. They bad for real. They bad um, for real. Mm. I,
0: I am so energized and inspired by this conversation. I have I have one more question. I'm so grateful for y'all sticking around. Um it, Tawana, you were named a top twenty five disruptive leader a few years back, and I just love that word disrupt and you know i have I have a ten year old son, and like disrupt is not a word that you know it in, in when when your kids are little that's a bad word right you don't want parents don't want to hear that their kids are disruptive, although I mean I confess i don't mind if my kid's disruptive because he's making a joke but you, you, but to bring disruption in the way that you are is to me is so is so badass if i can say that it's you're like you're we use this word a lot this season you're a baller and yeah. i was i was reading tawana's exhortations as one does on your blog and and you tell this story about watching your young daughter play basketball and can, I really think it speaks to your perspective on leadership and also disrupting what you notice is the status quo. Can you share that story with Greg? So
1: I'm going to, you, this is where you have to like um, uh, give a girl a heads up. So I'm going to pull it up quick um, so I can get a reminder of this one. It,
0: it was, uh, you can look at, it. no, you were watching your daughter play basketball and you were noticing that there were some, there were two girls who only kept passing to each other and the coach wasn't, wasn't interjecting.
1: Yeah. Um, so this is um, it's a story that's been a couple of years ago because it, it was before COVID. Um, so she third grade girls um, uh, and two who you know were only passing to each other and a coach who allowed them to keep doing that and I. Kept noticing it over and over that this would happen over and over and no one was saying anything. And yet in the crowd, kind of everyone could see this happening. And as a basketball mom who's learning this, who's pretty fierce, my um, children, my daughters, um, my clone, but they at this at third grade were um, still a little uh, nicer than me because, you know, I think I'd kind of gone for this ball. I think I noticed a couple things. One is that Most of the girls never got a chance to touch the ball and um, that quite often they're ending up losing the game largely because these two are having a game by themselves through um, out the game and that the parents were not discouraging it, but they were actually encouraging it. Like one little girl, actually, I would notice would get in trouble for not doing this behavior if she didn't do this in order to hog the ball. And then I would notice kind of the opposite of that was the observing the the opposing teams. Um, Most of them were being coached by women um, who were really good and that they were skilled at not just the game, but were skilled teams. They were teams who knew how to work the ball all over the courts. They knew how to encourage each other, but they also had fun in the game and their coaches I noted had taught them the whole game and I I, I was watching this because I was a I needed to shift my anger <laughs> for what was happening to, to like okay to want to get in a different place and but so also, I
0: like you were seeing that when everybody got a chance, right? Yeah. You didn't yeah, just they name it's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 They were thriving. And and the win of that, right? They're winning all over. And and what I take from that is not only how I work in my own team, right, as as that's, we've got a team, uh, we just had an employee who started two days ago and her face looked disgruntled through a meeting. And so her a new supervisor, HR, went to her like later, like, are you OK during that meeting? And she said, you all took time to acknowledge me. Each person, as they reported, they stopped and said, hey, let me give you context as I start. And everybody talked, everybody shared, people challenged each other, they educated. She's like, I've not seen that. No place I've worked before. That didn't happen. And like you're talking on racial equity, like this is all a little too good to be true. Like, is this really happening in the workplace? And it was similar to that basketball situation. Now, we're not always perfect. We got our own stuff, right? But that space of trying to say, how do we win by getting everybody in the game? By saying everybody's got special skills, but those special skills are only our special sauce to the extent that they complement every other special skill on this team, Otherwise, they're just hurting us because they need to stand out and be
2: the star alone.
0: Greg, Bill. you must have some kind of coda with with a sports metaphor there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I it is such a it, it's such a great metaphor because it, it is a metaphor for how you know organizations and, and culture and workplaces uh, need to work um, to be efficient. Everybody deserves to touch the ball. Um, it yes. doesn't matter who scores the basket. Um, everybody knows. You know, everybody knows their role, and everybody is contributing. Um, that's how teams are um, are effective. And you know, it. Uh, that, that's all I will say about it.
0: <laughs> well, we we've run out the clock, um, Tawana. I I think you have the honor of being the person we've been we've been yeah. I've been so honored to interview the longest. Yeah. I mean, I know you both have like important things to do in the world, but this no, has uh, been such an amazing conversation. I can't thank you enough. Um, uh, On your website, there's a vertical called ministry. And the first sentence says, evangelist Tawana A. Black is a preacher. Now, my friend Greg likes to use the phrase, take him to church more than once on this show. (laughs) More than once. (laughs) Right. So I want you to take us to church. You know, what what words from evangelist Tawana do you want to leave us with today?
1: Oh, that's a powerful one. Well, a as we were speaking earlier, something um, uh, struck me that was in that vein, um, which was that if it's in your hands to do, you have a responsibility to do it. If it's in your hands to give, you have a responsibility to give it. If it's in your hands to sew it, you have a responsibility to sew it. And we all will reap what we sow. And that is not, as Greg said earlier, that's not a calling out. That's a calling in. I'm calling Mm. everyone into this game of racial equity and inclusion and building economies that truly work for everyone. All of us have something to give. We all have agency to be able to use that, whether it's on your block with your neighbors, it's in your school, of your children, it's in your business and using that agency. It's in your community and being a voice. But if it's in your hands... Give it, sow it, use it, in order to build our communities and make them as strong and equitable and inclusive as they possibly can be, and do it with some urgency.
0: Tawana Black.
2: Church. Good.
0: Good. Church. Wait, I didn't say it right. Say it again, Greg.
2: Church. No, R church. silent. Church. silent. Church. church.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I have. Look, you y'all can argue with me, but I have the best job in the world. I I love, I know you both do too, but um, I am so grateful for this conversation and even more grateful for what you're both doing in the world.
1: Thank you both. You've been absolutely amazing.
2: Thank you, Faith. Thanks, Tawana.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.